0: Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a MAR Recovery Resources production from MAR Addiction Treatment Centers. I'm Matt Shedd. Penelope's drinking and drug use began in high school and ramped up in her young adulthood during the 1960s when she was traveling around and participating in events like Woodstock. She became addicted to heroin in the process and ended up in prison for a year at the age of 21. Upon getting out, she joined a company as a dancer and taught at a college, while also making crystal meth on the side for the Hell's Angels. After a nightmare detox experience in a psych ward, Penelope made it from San Francisco to admit to MARS Women's Program, now called Traditions Recovery Center for Women. Being new to the South, she felt like a fish out of water, but she hung in and found recovery and made lifelong friendships. She discusses the principles she learned in early recovery, which she still uses to this day, 20 years later. She also shares how she learned to accept and share love from people that she thought she had nothing in common with. Here's Penelope. When did you come to Mar? I
1: came to Mar on January 17th, 2000. I had my last drug. On Christmas Day, 1999. So I have over 20 years.
0: What was the progression of that for you? I mean, when did when did drug use slash alcohol use start for you? And, and how did it progress over the years before the Christmas of 1999?
1: Um, my drug use, my alcohol use started when I got... When I first got drunk, when I was a junior in high school, and this is 1965, so I'm 72. Mm. And I got drunk on a trip that I wasn't on the school trip, but I was parallel to the school trip because I couldn't afford the school trip. And I got drunk, and I was found out, and I was relieved of all of my... "Quote accolades." I was student body, I'd be student body vice president, my senior, head cheerleader, the top twenty in my high school in the class of six hundred, and that shame happened. And from that point on, I just said, "Screw it!" And I dropped down as far as scholarship goes. I started getting drunk every weekend, and um, I did go to college for a little over a year. I hated it because I really wanted to go dance. And um, then I was entered, then I quit society, became your typical hippie, went back to Woodstock, did all of that, and I was introduced to a heroin. Mm. And I ended up going to prison at the age of 21 for a heroin addiction. And I, I went down the tubes really fast. And then I got out, and I swore I would never do heroin again. But I, I ended up having a lifestyle where i try to stay clean for parole. And then um, went back to the hippie drugs of acid and drinking wine to come down. But I did it all on Friday and Saturday so I could be ready for a test on Monday. And then I... Got back into dance, then I got back into school, uh, scholarships, um, doing all kinds of performing. I, I was in a relationship. Um, I was married, divorced. You know, still trying to search for myself. There's a lot of things in between here. <laughs> but, sure, um, of course. You know, I I, I never drank. Enough to get drunk and stay drunk for two days because I was in a company. So, I, you know, being in a dance company and touring, I was not um, drinking or doing drugs because uh, I was really satisfied. And so I, I went through all these different stages. And then um, I was teaching at a university and uh, I was in a very unhappy relationship and broke that relationship up. And I was introduced to crystal meth. And, uh, you know, when you're older and you're trying to do all these things, crystal meth is a very appealing drug.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, I always say I started out trying to slow down and I ended up trying to speed up. You know, and um, I ended up, I ended up, I, when I tell my story, I tell everyone that, you know, I ended up, Working with two other lesbians, making crystal meth for the Hells Angels in Oakland, California. Wow. And so I was a cook and I never had to worry about my drugs. I was still teaching at the university. I finished there. They wanted to change the emphasis and I ended up being um, one of the two people chosen as the outstanding professor at the university after five years of being there. You know, on one hand, I was doing drugs, on the other hand, faculty and students loved me, and, you know, I still had that empty heart, as I came to find out, um, and then I decided, well, th- my life is over, and I, you know, speeded up everything, and then I wanted to kill myself, and uh, I almost did in 1995, but I chose not to, and so I kept doing drugs um, through my mother's death. 1997. And in 1999, I didn't have any um, electricity. I didn't have any power. I was sleeping on a futon in front of a fireplace when I slept. And I had my gun and I had my dog and I had a phone and I called 911 and reported there was, this is funny, (laughs) reported there was a gun pointed at me and she said, who, she says, is he angry? I said, no, I'm pointing it at myself. And she didn't know what to say. And I hung up the phone and she, she got enough time to get the SWAT team over to where I was. And um, the, they had surrounded the house. And the guy who was talking to me recognized me because he recognized that my dog and I would ride up Mount Tamalpais. And I trained my dog to um, go curbside. So that when we mountain mountain bike riding, she was always on the side that was least dangerous for her. And he talked me out of my gun after an hour and a half, which had hollow point bullets because I had done my research, being good at it. You know, you you do your research for things. And um, the SWAT team was in there, took my gun away, put me in isolation, but they had no place to keep me because they put me in a strip cell. And I was in Marin County and of course Marin County didn't have any place to put people who were quote indigent because everybody's wealthy there. So they <laughs> drove me in the band, you know, and... It was the second time in my life, because the first time was when I was with heroin that I was taken to a like a hospital in a strait jacket. First time I kicked from heroin I was in a straight jacket without any medicine for three days. You know. And um I tell all the youngsters. I said, you have it easy now. They give you medicine to help you not have a headache, <laughs> grow up so much. I said, you know, in the old days, they just tied you to a bed and set you sort of up so that you wouldn't choke on your own vomit. So then I got a call from my brother, Mark, who had been at Marr, and um, he adores Doug Brush. He did. He just died this year.
0: Oh, and, sorry to hear that.
1: He ended up with cirrhosis, but he spent his last 12 years clean, which Mm. was pretty amazing. Um, So uh, I ended up flying to Mar um, for treatment, but I didn't know what the treatment really meant. I was just going to go there, and and I told everybody the first three days until I went to Donnie Brown's camp, and Donnie was there. I told them the first couple of days I was there because I just didn't know how to get along with people. (laughs) <laughs> I in at Mar and I didn't even really Metro Atlantic Recovery Residency. I just don't know how to get along and I'd like to find a way to live.
0: You know, I did
1: not admit I was a drug addict until three days in. Mm. So that's how I got there. I didn't know what I was coming to. I had no idea what I was coming to. All, I, all my brother, Mark, convinced me that it wasn't a jail or a prison and that I might have find find myself that it was really good for him and um i said okay and then i came and i was dropped off and i don't even remember the first meeting but i i we had to go to an aa meeting and i'd never been to a meeting and um I was having a hard time because of the blue and white lights of the police department here. We were driving and there was a police car that passed us and it was like I was just like having these headaches and hallucinations. Wow. And and, uh, we went to a meeting and it was the first meeting I ever been to. It was the Tucker group, and it was Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't say anything. And they separated into groups and they separated into a woman's group. And this one woman sat next to me, and um, I just introduced myself as Penelope, and she wrote me a note. She says, I know that you're in Mar, that you can't call anybody, but when you're, you're, that time is over with, uh, here's my phone number, and I will temporarily sponsor you. And um, at, towards the end of the meeting, I admitted that I had a problem a little bit. Because I still had an been <laughs> alcoholic You remember I said three days before, you know, right. and you know I told all of them I wasn't there for I didn't have their problems, right? <laughs> I just didn't know how to get along with people anymore, right? They got me a twelve and twelve in a big book, mm-hmm. and then I went out, and everybody's how was it? I said it's okay, and then all I remember is the next morning we had our first group meeting, um. For feeling school. And Yule Harding was leading it. And he said something and he laughed, and I thought, where in the hell have I come? I couldn't relate in a lot of ways at first. And um, I still wasn't giving into anything. And that Wednesday, I went to uh, Camp Donnie Brown and um, we were getting introduced, you know, some of us as we were coming in, and first thing, Greg says, this is Mark's sister, Penelope. And Donnie says, I want to give Mark a call and tell you how, time how well you're doing here. And he put his arms around me. And I had on coveralls and a big tie-dye shirt. Uh Not like anything anybody else had on up there. Because, I mean, that's when the women and the men were still together. So... The, the the girls were dressed up and had their makeup on to go to a camp, you know. And and so um, a week later was the very first big – I and, and I admitted – at that point I admitted that um, I was there because I had a problem with um, drugs. And that's all I said because I didn't talk a lot at first.
0: So I'm curious, did that – you know, you talked about um... – not you know feeling like you were very different from the women that were in um treatment here at mar what did that start to um kind of evaporate like that sense of being different or were were you able to kind of start connecting after time started passing a little bit
1: yeah it ended up talking to one person a doctor who came in in the middle of february and um She and I still write at Christmas time and call at least once a year. You know, we're working on 21 years. Um, I went and visited her my very first Thanksgiving because she couldn't be with her family because of things, and I didn't have a family. So um, my first sponsor, who um, I just talked to last week, who turned 81 last week, I'm still in contact with her. She and I drove drove to her place for Thanksgiving, and she was a doctor, and she was basically an alcoholic. And uh, she was on her third day, and we were talking around the lake. And, and she says, you know, I know that I need to stay. And I said, that's good. I said, you know, none of us has you here. None of us had this in our high school book. Right. Yeah, and then I'm a drug addict. And I said, but I said, there's a lot of hope here. And I said, you may find your path to staying clean. And uh, so we are still in contact. Another woman um, who I've remained good friends with, who had, would put together four years or five years and then, then go off the wagon, um, and I I always have hope for everybody, so I, I you know I never discard anybody because um, you just never know. And she and I got along really well through um, uh, halfway and through three quarters, uh, and I've gone I've seen her on my way to visit a friend in in Chincoteague Island, and and she's come down here. And um, I found, so you can see, I found not only commonality, but I maintain contacts with some people. And really try to reach out to other women because there are so few of us in recovery.
2: Mm.
1: So few of us make it to to treatment and to the recovery, to the rooms. Um, Because I would say there's at least 10 to 15 men Minimum to every woman that's in the rooms. So,
0: can you say more about that? Why? Why do you think that is? um,
1: I think there are several reasons uh, for that, and I think it takes a woman a lot longer to admit that they have a problem. Um, That uh, you know, because they're used to uh, surviving and taking care of things. I also believe that uh, women don't have the same financial background backing to enter treatment, and they don't have the same kind of uh, care in the sense of um, that's true up and down the lines. There are not as many treatment centers. There are not as many detox centers. Uh, women don't have the same financial base. They may not have the same insurance base, even sure. if they have a financial base. And the big one, the big one, the shame in children. Mm. That is, you know, the, the the learning to know that you have been taken away from your children by that this disease, whatever the disease is for you, um, whether it is alcohol or um, a form of other form of addiction, um, it takes a long time for a woman to admit that, and unless they have family in place, then there has to be a place for the children. And to admit, even if there's a place for the children, to admit the the great shame of of being incapable of being a mother, I think also prevents women um, from entering recovery until they're extremely desperate. Um, And because I deal more In the H&I situations, I see the women who are extremely desperate. Um, And it's very difficult to have them stay in recovery long enough. Long enough, stay in a treatment long enough, stay in a program long enough. You know, three months is a very long time for a woman who has a child. And uh, that's if they still have them. Hmm. Than then the then the women also who don't have their children anymore, and they have to earn them back, and they feel that's impossible. And I know that's not true. I've seen it, witnessed it.
0: Yeah, I mean that's yeah. You you stated it really well. I think that that's because there's there on on the one hand there's the logistical issue of you know women are often the primary caretakers too of the children and let alone if they have a job on top of that and then um and then that cultural shame too where there's already some stigma and shame of just having an addiction but then being a mom with an addiction it's like how you know because if people don't understand the disease model um or how addiction works it's like well how could you not care about your kids and and that's not the issue um but it's it's you know that's just a that's really unfortunate. Um, and we see that a lot with our, you know, we have the Right Side Up program oh, here. Yeah.
1: yeah, I was there when the Right Side Up first started.
0: Oh, wow.
1: I just left, just left Mar when the Right start, Side started.
0: So, yes, yeah, I'm just wondering if any moments in particular stand out from your- there, there
1: are a couple things. Yeah. Um, okay, this is sort of... I was in my second week of being there, and there was a third-year resident in my group. And I never played um, Trivial Pursuit, you know. And they said, oh, come on, Penelope. I said, I'll try it. Well, I was really good at it because I've had exposure to a lot of things in my life. So I could answer a lot of stuff.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And this third-year student said, you can't be answering all these because you're a dancer. You know, two of us are doctors and one of us is an anesthesiologist and one's a dentist and one's a contractor and and you're just a dancer. I said, oh, you think all dancers are dumb? (laughs) We just don't talk a lot. Mm -hmm. Our expression is different. Well, she and I ended up having to be in the same room. Oh, no. (laughs) You know, and we did not get along. We did not get along. Well, about four or five weeks later is when I had a meltdown so bad that I locked myself in the closet. And they had an emergency mail meeting. I, you know, this is I, I had a, a break breakdown, and um, they said, "Okay, we're going to let you stay tonight. You promise not to commit suicide?" I said, "Yeah." Then they held a special group for me and my co- community. And I'll never forget, this woman looked at me and she said, she said, you may need medication. Medication is what's helped me. And you may find it something that would be good for you too. And in that moment, I felt some I felt real honesty from her. Mm. And, And you know, and I was sleeping on the couch. That's when they banned sleeping on the couch anymore because I never slept in the bedroom because I didn't want to be around her that much. Wow. And I looked at her, and I just registered it in my head. Um, so Mar helped me with my familial relationships, my boundaries. Um, I love the old saying, um, it helped me to learn to say yes to certain things, no to certain things. Maybe I can do this, and I love this one. I can change my mind. Hmm. Because so many people, and myself particularly, I felt if I changed my mind, I was wishy washy. Right. And also, during the times when I was addicted and out of it, if I changed my mind, I couldn't remember always my lies.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: see, I don't have to lead a life with, you know, I can say, yes, I can do that, or no, I can't do that. I so I had the familial things, my own boundaries. Um, that I might need medication, that I was uncomfortable as hell, you know, um, and I didn't know the game plan because none of us know the game plan and we want to have the answers so that we can control the situation. Mm-hmm. Mar doesn't like to have that. But I want to say I felt loved and accepted after a while. And I really felt loved. And I still feel loved. And I have a great love and appreciation for the incredible foundation that I was given at Mark to really come out into the world and have my recovery. And I was allowed myself time to do that. My first sponsor did not let me go see my family or make amends for two years. Just wow. said, no, you don't need to do that. You're not ready. You'll just go and get crushed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No matter how determined I may sound in our conversation, there are things in all of us, and I, I'm speaking for myself, but I've witnessed, and uh, there's a place in all of us where we're extremely vulnerable, and things that we have looked at, that shame can come back, and it's like we' never dealt with it after years. I was at Marford, I was at Mar for nine months. You know, when you decide to walk in the doors in Mar and you can eventually go to three quarters,
0: you don't know it.
1: But, you know, um, I think a lot of us do better if we stay longer than three months.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, we, are just, we are just cutting through it. And boy, to go back, I, can't, I didn't go back to my situation. I stayed here in Atlanta. And I, some, my sponsor found me a basement apartment below a woman who had 20 years.
2: Mm Hmm.
1: So I, you know, I had people in the program outside of Mar that were watching my back.
0: And yeah, that's what I was going to ask too, because I can tell you're very, even still to this day, twenty years later, still very committed to twelve step recovery and those fellowships. Um, But it's what do you think? So what do you think that Mar provided in addition to the twelve step uh, programs and fellowships that? that you needed that was helpful like what what did going to treatment at mar provide because i think a lot of people think well why don't i just go to aa or uh, ca or cma
1: first of all, the first very first thing it does is it gives you a break from your whole life mm. i mean you aren't allowed to make phone calls you aren't allowed to do certain things and so you're cut off from how you have always done your life. And I think that is incredible to have that opportunity. It may be scary for some people. It was scary for me. I mean, I flew from San Francisco to here, you know. and, and um, But I think having, not having um, connections, no matter how poor they were to family or anybody else, that was really good for me and Mark provided that and during that time they are right there with you every step I mean you have a buddy you have a community and I think having a um, having the buddy system and having a community is really valuable it teaches you it begins to teach you boundaries it begins to teach you what you want to say and what you don't want to say um, it begins to when you see some things happen with some of the people in the in there you see how someone is right there to help to be of assistance and that's in mm-hmm. mar and mar community um uh, they know you even though you don't know yourself i mean they know the addict and the alcoholic and our go to's and but they allow i mean you know, all of them allow in a different way, you know, Bill, all of them allow in a different way, how you, for you to come to your own revelations about mm-hmm. something. Gary Dyes caught me in something and he made me feel so, I mean, I had been so dishonest, it really got to me. Mm. You know, because I had been honest up to that point, but I, I was into surviving. As always, and he just laid into me for something, and he didn't lay into too many people. He didn't lay, and he doesn't lay in in front of others, and he doesn't. He did it in such a way that I went, God, I've really become this person that I, you know, you know, I I wouldn't lie when I was a hippie, mm-hmm. um, or even before that. Um, And it began the long journey, which became my father and I became good friends, loving each other, caring for each other. He has said things to me in the last 10 years that I thought I would never hear from my father. You know, I I was surprised. And um, I call him twice a week and talk to him. And sometimes he remembers me and sometimes he doesn't. But, you know, you know, and and. I and was that started
0: t- while you were here? Yes. Wow. I'm sorry, I cut you off. You said you always tell That's
1: him. It. Yeah, I mean, I didn't care whether he lived or died for many years. Wow. You know, and, and, and it, it, it became a true relationship. I was able to forgive myself for my drug addiction during my mother's death and um, stealing a piece of jewelry from her and letting her know that I had stolen it, but I still had it the day before she died. And I felt forgiven. Wow. Doing all the things we do, you know? I wasn't special. Um, and, and given that kind of courage. Um, and, and Mar also gave me a sense of freedom. Because I got to be around other people who had, who'd come in uh, on and stuff that had time Mm
0: -hmm. and that were
1: enjoying their lives.
0: So what would you say, what would you pass on to somebody who's listening if you could pass on one thing?
1: I guess be patient with yourself because you're worth getting clean. That's what I'd say.
0: That's great. That's great. Like
1: Doug Rush says, God don't make junk.
0: (laughs) That's right. And it's
1: one of my favorite sayings. Mm -hmm. So I've turned it into, so you're worth it. You know, because they will say, come back, you know, um, work it, you, you know, work it. And then I'll say, because you're worth it. You are worth it.
0: All right. That's it for this episode of Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Thank you so much for joining us. And we just want to let you know that if you're struggling as you're listening to this right now, perhaps you're struggling with an addiction or somebody close to you is, please feel free to call our assessment counseling team. Their number is 678-805-5131. They would be happy to speak with you. The call is completely free and it's completely confidential. Or you can also reach out to us through the chat feature on our website. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Matt Shedd, and we're already looking forward to next time.